1 Corinthians chapter 1. Well, there's a crisis in our country. It's a crisis that's crippling our nation, devastating lives and homes. Sometimes this crisis is motivated by popularity, sometimes by prosperity. At the center of this problem is a striving for relevancy and a desire for measured success. You know what this tragedy is? If you know what my topic is this morning, you know. It's unbiblical. It's man-centered preaching. This is a crisis that I believe is in many pulpits in America, and I think it be, can be tempting for us as a church to fall into this problem as well. It's a crisis that is in the pulpits where we fail to preach the word of God under the authority of God. It's a failure to faithfully preach the the whole counsel of God. It's a failure to preach for the glory of God, empowered by the spirit of God. It's a failure to preach Christ and his work as the only means for salvation. And for many churches, they have exchanged expositional preaching for man-centered preaching. Instead of expositing the text so that we expose the congregation to the truth of what God actually said, many churches have exchanged preaching for motivational, dramatic productions. Many have put the, the band as the center stage for what actually is happening in the church and and tack on at the end an anecdotal, sentimental talk. Instead of aiming for preaching that strikes the heart to fear God, to to consider God and his holiness and his greatness and his goodness, instead of preaching that humbles ourselves before him in submission and love, instead of preaching that seeks to glorify God, many pastors aim for preaching that improves one's life that calls for the individual to make better, healthier decisions, to try to encourage a person to be happier, to to feel good about oneself. In many pulpits, sin is no longer preached as defying the holy God and disobeying his laws. Sin is now just not reaching your potential. It's, It's not feeling good about yourself. Sin is no longer what God calls sin. Sin is not abiding by cultural norms. It's not abiding by the the cultural drifts and winds, movements like wokeism, BLM, or even some type of political activism. And so churches now are going that direction. Instead of preaching God's goodness as defined by God, and God's goodness is him making us more like Christ, even if it means suffering, now pastors preach goodness is defined by the individual. Good is what you want God to do for you. Hell is no longer preached. Judgment is no longer talked about. Condemnation is only in the court of the opinions of the culture. Jesus is no longer preached as Lord the Lord to whom we must submit. Now Jesus is a way for me to improve my life, to make my business better, to gain more money, to give me a better marriage. Truth is no longer preached as absolute. Truth is now something of, what does the scripture mean to me? 
It's relative. Our preferences are more important than God's absolute truth. The purpose of churches are no longer to glorify God by making disciples. Many now see the church as a way to meet needs, to have kind of a social club, to make your life or make you feel better about life. And so now we have churches in America that that walk by feelings and not by faith. They no longer long to, to know God. They want to experience God. They don't want sacrifice. They want comfort. And I think the result is, is because the pulpits are filled with man-centered preaching. And so now churches are operating like businesses where the pastor is some type of cook who who makes up a great meal and delivers it, and the congregants are consumers. And so as as congregants, they come in, and they expect to have a pleasant atmosphere with agreeable music. The sermon should make them feel good about themselves, and if they're happy customers, they'll leave a tip on the way out. And that is genuinely how many people view church. And the problem really starts right here in the pulpit. And the problem with preaching is preaching that seeks to accommodate, to be relevant. It's pastors who want to be liked rather than preaching that seeks to be faithful, to be accurate to God's word, to honor Christ. The problem is with preaching that uses the cross to to prop up worldly wisdom instead of just opening God's word, expounding the truth, and letting the voice of God speak. The problem is with man-centered preaching, that that self-promoting, that self-affirming, that's really self-centered, as opposed to preaching that is God-exalting, that is word-filled, that is cross-centered, that's spirit-empowered, and that's personally convicting and humbling. And so in our text here in 1 Corinthians, what we see is Paul contrasts man-centered preaching with what he's calling us to do, and that is cross-centered preaching. We're looking, the next couple weeks, we're looking at 1 Corinthians 1, 17 through chapter 2, verse 5. And here we see this contrast. And I think what God does here is he gives his philosophy of preaching through the apostle Paul. And the conclusion he wants us to come to is this, that we must preach the cross because it is how God demonstrates his power and his wisdom. So the question we're asking here is why should Lighthouse Bible Church employ cross-centered preaching as opposed to man-centered preaching? And last week we looked at our first point, and that is, the first reason is, Because cross-centered preaching displays the power of God. Cross-centered preaching demonstrates that God's word is powerful as opposed to man's word and man's ways. Man's word, man's ways are empty. So look down with me at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17. Just review what we talked about last week. 1 Corinthians 1, 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel or to herald the good news that Jesus came and died for your sins. And not with words of 
eloquent wisdom, not with wisdom words, or as the Greek says, sophia logos, wisdom words, the wisdom of this world, not with that kind of approach, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And so last week we learned that there's a type of preaching that talks about the cross and maybe has a cross in the room, but it uses the cross to promote an appeal to the self. Maybe the, maybe the preacher tries to impress the audience with his, his great knowledge or his wonderful oratory skills. Maybe he seeks to entertain or to manipulate so he can contrive a certain outcome. And though he may use the cross, his, his preaching is empty because it's centered on himself and the self. And so man-centered preaching seeks to exalt Man, but Paul says here, he says, I did not come to you with this, this man type of centered preaching. I preached Christ. I put him on full display. My preaching was cross-centered preaching. Man-centered preaching is empty. It could only produce temporal results, really fleeting emotional responses. But Christ-centered, cross-centered preaching It actually produces supernatural, lasting change. And so look at verse 18. We see this power of the preaching of the cross for the word, the logos, the preaching of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So Paul in verse 18 here divides every person in this world into two categories. You're either a person who is perishing or you're one who is being saved. So you're in one of those two categories. Those who are perishing are those who have not called out to Jesus to save them. They are not saved by Jesus through his work on the cross. And so he says there that they are perishing. So this is, a, this is something that's ongoing. Their their bodies are wasting away. Their their souls are accumulating condemnation. There there will be a time when they drop dead and then they will perish forever in eternal hell. But, But right now they are perishing. This is a present tense participle. In other words, it's something that's that's going on. It's a process. It's a process of ruin, of destruction. They have not yet been consigned to eternal hell yet, but they are on their way there. And he says that there's a group of people in this world, and that's their destination. In fact, everybody enters into this world with that, in that category. They are perishing. But then he says there are those who are being saved. These are individuals who have been rescued by Christ through his work on the cross. He says, notice, he says, they are being saved. So again, it's a, it's a present tense, and actually it's a passive. So it's something God is doing to this person. So it's, it's a continual way that God is saving them. So what is he talking about here? Well, you could say it this way. You could say a Christian is saved. So at conversion, God promises them that they are saved from the penalty of sin. In other words, they are forgiven. They are justified. They are declared righteous in Christ. They have the gift of eternal life. They are saved from that condemnation. But you could also say that Christians are being saved, which means they are not yet with Christ. They're not yet in glory, 
But, but sin is still present with them. There's, there's the power of sin that's around them. They are sometimes overcome by that, by the power of the cross. They can overcome that power. But the point is they still are in a sin-cursed world. And so Christ is holding on to them and he is saving them until that last day. And that last day, whether that be their death or whether it be the coming of Christ, they will finally be saved. In other words, they will be with Christ. And they'll be saved from the, not just the penalty of sin, but the presence of sin and the power of sin. So we are saved, we are being saved, and then someday we will finally be saved. I read an illustration about this, so I thought I would use it here to explain this. Think about a ship. Think about a ship that's maybe, maybe 25 miles out to sea, and it's in the middle of the night, so it's pitch black. The winds are howling, you know, maybe 20, 30, 40 miles an hour winds. And you have the waves are, are coming over the side of the ship, maybe 30, 40, 50 feet high. And there's something happening in the ship below deck. The, the ship is taking on water. It's sinking. And, and maybe some on board know it. Maybe some below saw it. Maybe some are just in their cabins not sure what's going on. They just know it's a bad storm. Maybe some are on deck. But the point is, there's a very bad storm, and, and soon that ship will sink. And so you can say it this way, everybody on board is perishing. They have not yet perished, right? The, the ship has not yet sunk. They, have, they are not yet in the water, taking water into their lungs, right? They're, they're perishing, though. But then think about a search and rescue helicopter that flies in, and the spotlight shines on the deck. A man is lowered down on a cable, and he descends down shouting, let me save you. If not, you will perish. And there could be some on board that, that hear some noise and just disregard it. Some might not believe him. Some might try to save themselves. But there are some who are on board who, who see the rescue helicopter, who, who hear the message, they believe and they are therefore latched into a harness pulled up by the helicopter. So you could say this. You could say they are saved. But yet then as the helicopter makes its way back to, you know, land across the sea, you could say they are being saved. And then when the helicopter lands, they are finally safe. They're finally saved. And so we who have trusted Christ, we have been saved. We are being saved. And there will be a day when we meet our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we will forever be with the Lord. And so according to God's word, you are either in here without Christ, you are saved, you're being saved, and finally someday you will finally be saved, or you are perishing. Your soul is sinking into the depths of your sinful condition. Your soul is depraved, it's sinful, it's, it's broken, it's lost, it's doomed now, scripture says that's the case for every person that comes into this world, for all have sinned, all have sinned. We've all rejected God in our thoughts and our words and actions. And therefore, what God does for a person who is perishing, he sends the, the waves of shame and the winds of guilt upon our soul. So we'll recognize that there's a problem and, and if you don't turn in faith to Jesus Christ, your soul will sink into eternal condemnation. But the good news is this, that Jesus Christ has come. God sent his son so that you should not perish. Jesus, when he preached the sermon on earth, 
in Luke 13, 3, he said this. He says, unless, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus believed this. This isn't just something I'm coming up with or Paul the apostle wrote. Jesus says, unless you repent, unless you turn to Jesus Christ in faith, you will perish. That's a warning from Jesus, but also a promise that if you turn to him, he will save you. For God so loved the world. We know this one, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Friends, that is true. There's one destination, there's two destinations. Either you're on your way to perishing forever or you are on your way to heaven. To those of us who have believed in Jesus, we are saved, we're being saved, and finally someday will be saved. And notice verse number 18 says, to those who are being saved, those who are trusting the, the cross work of Christ, then the, the, the word of God, the preaching of the gospel is power to us. But look at those who are perishing. In verse 18, he says, to those who are perishing, the preaching of the cross is what? It's folly. It's foolishness. And so this leads us to our second point, And that is, why should we preach cross-centered sermons? That's because cross-centered preaching demonstrates the wisdom of God. So the power of God and also the wisdom of God. And it, it demonstrates that God is the source of true wisdom and man-derived wisdom is foolishness. That God is the source of true wisdom. And man-made wisdom, worldly wisdom, is true foolishness. Verse 18 says that the world views the preaching of the cross, what I'm doing right now, as foolishness. People, many people look at this and think, what I'm doing right now is something that is folly. Now, if the world thinks preaching is foolishness, why would God utilize that? Think about that. Why would God want to disseminate the message of the gospel through preaching, through something that the world says, oh, that's a bunch of foolishness, it's a bunch of folly? Well, think about it this way. If God used what the world esteems, in other words, if God, if God used great orators, famous celebrities, winsome entertainers to disseminate his gospel, then who would receive the glory? In other words, if it came because man was great, then who would be considered great? Man. But what, what he does here, he says, I'm going to take what the world says is foolish, and I'm going to disseminate my wisdom through that. I'm going to preach the wisdom of God through that. And then, therefore, who is it that receives the glory? It's God. Don't you love the irony of God? God is the God of wisdom. So how does he display his wisdom? Well, he chose to employ what the world considers foolish, to confound the world and put on display their own foolishness. In fact, look at verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the, discerning of the, the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God made foolish, has, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. 
It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So here Paul contrasted the the wisdom of the world, which is not wisdom, it's folly, but the wisdom of the world with the true wisdom of God. And so notice the play on words here. Man claims to be wise, but his wisdom is foolishness. God is wise, so to display his wisdom and man's folly, he uses what the world calls as folly to display his wisdom. Did you catch that? It's hard to follow, isn't it? And the point of it is, is that God wants to display that he is wise and man is foolish. Now, I think as we go through this text, we probably ask the question, what is wisdom? In fact, actually 20 times in chapter 1 and 2, he uses the word either wisdom or wise. So, so the question I think we probably should ask before we go forward is, what is wisdom? And wisdom is simply this. Wisdom is knowledge that is applied. Think about it. It's knowledge that is applied. So, so you might have the knowledge that you should, you should stop at a red light, right? And wisdom is putting on the brakes. Or, or you might have the knowledge that, that you should, as a, as a Christian man, be, be faithful to your wife, that you should that the joy of marriage is found in self-sacrifice and honoring your wife and cherishing her. So you might have that knowledge. Wisdom then is, is picking up your socks, right? Wisdom is going to get her flowers and telling her you love her. It's speaking kindly. It's, it's admitting you're wrong and asking for forgiveness. That's wisdom. It's, it's, it's knowledge applied. And so the world seeks wisdom and knowledge and they seek it outside of God. Psalm 14, 1 says this, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, or literally, no God for me. In other words, I don't need God to get along in life. I'm fine on my own. In fact, I can pretty much be my own God. I can rule my own life. And the fool rejects God's wisdom. The fool rejects God's knowledge. Proverbs 12, 15 says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. In other words, the fool believes whatever he or she thinks must be true. So he or she takes this self-referenced knowledge and foolishly applies that to his or her life. So they apply knowledge of themselves to their life and their fools. That's what we talked about last week. This is a, the false religion of the self that looks to the self The way of the fool is right in his own eyes. It's like he's looking at what he thinks. He goes, whatever I think must be true. The scripture warns us about seeking wisdom from within the self and outside of God. Jeremiah 10, 23. I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself. You won't hear that in a Disney movie, right? Because that's not the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world is to look inside of yourself. The wisdom of the world considers that the purpose of my life is to be happy, to have self-fulfillment. The wisdom of the world seeks to discover oneself. I I want to express myself, my authentic self, to gather attention to the self, to gain power for the self, to leave a legacy for the self. I read an article this past week about George Soros probably one of the most influential people in the world, 
you might not even know his name. He's given billions of dollars to things that go completely against the truths of God's word. And he, he did so, and he's done so, because he wants to leave a legacy for himself. It's not going to be a good legacy, and eternity will not be kind to him. But the point is, that's how people live. It's like, I, I want to leave a legacy for myself. I want to gain power for myself. And the world's wisdom starts with self, it ends with self. And that's why the wisdom of the world is so foolish. I mean, think about humanity. Think about how corrupt, how deceived we are. Think about how powerless that we are to affect real change. I mean, you have all these philosophies under the sun that hope to help people be better, but it doesn't curve evil. The world is just as evil, if not more so today, as it was many years ago. We have leaders who promise peace, yet there's always another war around the corner, isn't there? Everyone seems Everyone in power seems to know how to tell good lies, don't they? They like to deceive. They can't be trusted. We have a lot of technology. It's supposed to improve our life, but it's actually caused authoritarian governments to be able to annihilate people, to dominate over people. It's caused people to be able to live out any immoral fantasy they have. So true wisdom is not found within ourselves or within another person. God is is the source of wisdom. Knowledge and wisdom is found as one submits to him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So God is the source of knowledge and wisdom. And true true knowledge and true wisdom is found as we humble ourselves under his authority. God is the one who established all knowledge. He is omniscient, which means he knows everything. And he's the one who imparts wisdom to whom he will. True knowledge and wisdom come from God. But the fool rejects God's authority. The fool rejects God's wisdom and looks for wisdom and and truth from within. So what is God's answer in in verse 19? What is God's answer to this worldly wisdom that's actually foolishness? Well, verse 19 gives it the answer, and actually it's a quote from Isaiah chapter 29. Would you turn with me over to Isaiah chapter 29? Because what Paul does is he wants to prove a point, and so he uses this text of Scripture in Isaiah 29. And it's a text of scripture that speaks about Israel, and Israel was acting very foolishly. Now, they had God's revelation. They were God's special people. They had prophets who were supposed to speak for God. But instead of having that humble them before God, they exalted themselves up in pride. They spoke, at least they said they spoke for God. They put on a religious front. They had their religious rituals. They had their gatherings. They had their their events, their religious events. But really, they just lived for themselves and followed their own man-made rules so that they could exalt their own pride. Look at verse 13, Isaiah 29, 13. Isaiah 29, 13. And the Lord said, so here's God condemning Foolish Israel, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor with their lips. In other words, they're just putting on a show. 
They just put themselves on display. And why is that? Because they want people to think they are a certain way. So they use religious activity as a prop for themselves, to prop themselves up. How many people do that, right? They use religion to prop themselves up. But the truth is their hearts are far from God. This people draw near with their mouth, honor me with their lips. While their heart is far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. I like how the NIV translates this. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules. They have been taught. In other words, here is man-centered preaching right here. Here's these list of rules. Follow these rules. We will think you're important. Isn't that what matters? Follow these list of rules. I'm sure God will be pleased. We're prominent. We're important people. Isn't that what matters in this world? And that was their preaching. And so God responded to their man-centered preaching, their self-dependent living. In verse 14, he says, Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. Now stop right there and think about this. If God says to us, I'm going to do miracles here, like wonder upon miracle, wonder upon wonder, miracle upon miracle, wouldn't you be pretty excited? I mean, what's he going to do? Maybe lightning's going to come down. Maybe there's going to be a sign in the sky. Maybe people will speak in other languages. Maybe, maybe there's going to be some type of healing that's taking place. What are the wonders? I mean, doesn't these, a lot of churches want that, right? It's like, oh, we're going to, we want some miracles. What's going to happen here? So what's he saying? He says, I'm going to do a miracle. This is exciting. What's it mean? Look at verse 14. The wisdom of their wise men shall perish. The discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Wait, that's the miracle? In fact, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, because that in verse 19 is the quote that Paul pulls out from Isaiah chapter 29, and he uses it here. And Paul is, is building an argument, and he's presenting, he present, he's, he's proving what he's teaching here. And so what's God's answer to the fool who preaches the self as wisdom and looks for himself for wisdom? But look at verse 19. Here's the quote from Isaiah 29, verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy, this is God speaking, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. In other words, here's God's miracle he's gonna do in your heart, in the hearts of these people. He's gonna say, listen, I'm gonna show you how foolish you actually are. I'm gonna show you how your wisdom is actually foolishness. Not the miracle people expect, is it? Here's God's answer to those who trust in themselves for wisdom and power. God destroys your self-centered wisdom and self-centered self-dependent power by showing you how powerless and how foolish you truly are. See, humanity says, trust in yourself, depend upon yourself. You can do anything you want to do. How foolish is that? God says, I am the source of all wisdom. Humble yourself before me. Trust in me. To those who humble themselves before God, God gives wisdom to those who trust their own wisdom. God shows them how foolish they truly are. And just consider that. Consider how God displays the foolishness of this world to to them, to the world. 
I was reading about, this is a couple months ago, but about a philosopher named uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. And he is one of the fathers of modern philosophy. And this is one of his famous sayings. You probably heard this before. There are no eternal facts as there are no absolute truths. So think about that. There are no eternal facts as there are no absolute truths, which pretty much summarizes what people believe today, right? But what's interesting about that, he makes a statement that is an absolute truth and that as an eternal fact. So in order to, to, in order to prove that there's no eternal truth and there's no eternal facts, there's no absolute facts, he makes an absolute statement and an eternal, you know, that's an eternal truth. How foolish is that? Think about this one. Evolution says that order came from disorder. Although we don't see that anywhere in our world, order came from disorder. The, that, um, the complex interdependent design of our material world had no designer. So, so there's design, but there's no designer. I was watching a National Geographic thing a couple weeks ago, and they said something about when, when this was designed, speaking of, speaking of uh, the natural world we live in, and I was thinking to myself, well, they don't believe in that. They believe it's designed without a designer. How foolish is that? Romans 1.22, professing themselves to be wise, they became foolish. Fools. And don't we see that all around our world? I mean, the, people speak, the wisdom of politicians comes through, and you're going, that doesn't even make sense. That's the wisdom of the world. Professing themselves to be wise, they become fools. And what's interesting is God knows how to turn the tables in the world and display their foolishness. Foolishnessness. Foolishnessness. Their wisdom as foolishness. How about that? The most foolish wisdom of this world is one that really rejects God. That is the most foolish thing that a person can do. And someday God will actually put that on full display. Sometimes in this world, we see the foolishness of the world. But definitely at the end of time, when Christ stands as Lord and everyone bows to him, everyone will be seen to be the fool they actually were. Those who live for themselves on earth will spend eternity by themselves. God will show the foolishness of that, of living for yourself. Those who longed for the good life apart from God will be separated from God's goodness forever. Those who trusted in their own works will find the wages of their works is eternal death. So just think of the irony of how life will work and how eternity will work. Those who promoted themselves and preached themselves in the name of Christ. Matthew 7 says that they will stand before Christ and will say, we know you. And he'll say, I don't know you. Depart from me into everlasting darkness. So Paul in verse 20 then goes into some questions. And he, he sort of, in jest, compares God with the world. God's wisdom with the world's wisdom. Look at verse 20. Where is the one who is wise, Paul writes. In other words, compared to God, where are the wise ones? Where is the scribe? That's the religious scholar. Where is the debater of this age? That's the philosophical scholar. 
Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? See, the world's religious scholars, the world's philosophical scholars seem to be the best sources for wisdom, right? I mean, if you were going to find wisdom, you would go to those people who were scholarly. They were people, they are people who have status. They're the people who are highly esteemed. They seem to have the highest intellect, and many of them do. They're normally accomplished. And so it seemed to probably the average person that if you're going to go to someone, you're going to find wisdom, you're going to go to the religious elite or the intellectual elite. But the scripture says, no, actually God is a source of wisdom. And let me be clear about this. God is not anti-scholar. He's not anti-intellectual. He's not anti-logic. Because again, remember, God is omniscient. That means he's all knowledge. God is the scholar of scholars. He is the logos. He is logic. I was reading uh, about this this past week, and I was just doing some research on this, and I read about Johann Kepler. You know who that is? Some of you kids, hopefully in school, have learned about him. He's the father of modern European astronomy. He lived in the 1500s. He was a genius. He discovered the three laws of planetary motion and many other things. And he was once asked about his great knowledge that he had. And he said this, I'm just thinking God's thoughts after him. In other words, he recognized that God is the one who has all knowledge, and I submit my knowledge and my wisdom to him. Human logic, human knowledge, human achievement, human prowess cannot earn you favor with God, it cannot enable you to know God. Look at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, so here's God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom. You can't know God through your own human means, but it pleased God through the folly, what the world considers as foolish, the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The world thinks the cross is foolishness, that preaching is foolishness, that salvation by faith is foolishness. And therefore God says, okay, I'm gonna display my wisdom through those. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In verse 22, Paul presents really the two primary ways the world lives out this man-centered wisdom. Look at verse 22. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. Both of these ways are man-centered approaches to God and to life. The Jews of Paul's day typified people who, who would seek God through religious wisdom. Like many religions, the Jews had traditions. They had their rabbinic teachings. They expected God, the Jews expected God to conform to their, their rules that they had. And for the Jews of that day, their religious teachers taught that God was going to rescue them. And when he did it, he would do it with signs and with wonders. And so when they had a Messiah come who, who suffered and died, they rejected him. Because he's a weak king. Why would a king come and die? That doesn't make any sense. And it makes sense to them. It didn't fit their paradigm. They also didn't think they needed to repent. Why do we need to repent? We're God's special people. We're not going to confess any weakness, let alone sin. 
The Greeks typified people who thought they could know God through their reason. They had their philosophies, and they expected to be able to find truth through their man-centered humanistic ideas. So these are two approaches to life, and they, they actually seem to be completely opposite, and there are a lot of opposites to them, but there's one thing that unifies them, and that is they both start with the self, they depend upon the self, they trust in self-effort, they find truth through the self. In other words, man's, it's man-centered, it's self-centered. There are man-centered approaches to God. Those who trust in religious activity look to oneself and their own religion for wisdom. Those who trust in rationalism trust in one's own knowledge or the, the knowledge and the wisdom of this age. And the point is that God in his wisdom, he chose to save apart from man's wisdom and man's power. And this is anathema to the world, right? The world cannot imagine, the world cannot imagine God saving us apart from our efforts. I read this article this past week in, on Fox News, I think it was on some other websites as well, about a priest from St. Gregory Catholic Church in Phoenix. Anyone read that? I guess this priest, he incorrectly performed thousands of infant baptisms over many decades. So, you know, he takes this baby, the babies or whatever, and he sprinkles them or pours them or whatever he does. And he, he's supposed to say this formula. And so for the last 20 years, he messed up one word in that formula, one word. And so because of that, he resigned. And actually because of that as well, the church declared that all of those who were infant baptized by him did not have valid baptisms. So think about that. You're bringing your child, you know, this is supposed to get you into the, the church. It guarantees their salvation. And this guy messes it up, which means the baby you thought was going to heaven is going to hell. And maybe even yourself, you were baptized as a baby and now you're not going to heaven. According to the Diocese of Phoenix, this is a quote, they believe this, baptism is a requirement for salvation. So here you have a church, a people who claim to teach about God, to teach about Christ. They have crosses everywhere. So the cross is, is central to it, right? But their salvation comes from a priest who sprinkles water on a baby and says some type of formula. And their salvation comes from man. It depends upon man. It's based upon man-made traditions. And, 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 of course, the Bible teaches something completely different than that. But just pretend, pretend for a moment that that was actually the way to God, that salvation came through having yourself sprinkled as a baby and someone saying some kind of formula, and this guy messes it up. Think about that. There are countless people now who are going to hell. Some don't even know it because a priest messed up a formula. And how ridiculous is that? That is foolishness. And God puts that on full display. Salvation does not come from us, through us, because of us, by us. It does not depend on us. God alone saves through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And he saves those who believe the message of the cross. Look at verse 22. For Jews 
demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But what, what do we do? We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. The world looks for, for power and for wisdom from man. But Paul said, no, we preach Christ and him crucified. Christ is our wisdom. Christ is our power. And the cross of Jesus Christ displays the wisdom and power of God. The world says this. The world says, we are basically good people. But the cross of Jesus Christ, Christ crucified, declares that we are sinful and we deserve hell. That's why Jesus came to die. The world in its wisdom says that we can save ourselves through doing this or that, but Christ crucified declares Christ came to save and only, only his work on the cross can save us. The, world, the world's wisdom says you need God to prove himself to you. Maybe a sign, maybe God showed me that you're real. That's what the world teaches but Christ crucified declares that God has proved his love by sending his son. The world's wisdom says comfort and earthly success are what matter, but the cross of Jesus Christ declares that we must die to ourselves and live for God because eternity is what matters. So therefore, in verse 23, he says, we don't preach ourselves. We don't preach the wisdom of this world. We don't preach the power of man. We preach Christ and him crucified. So Paul's point is that we need to preach Christ. It's imperative for us as a church to make sure that whatever we do in communicating the gospel, that we have the cross of Jesus Christ as central to that message. Cross-centered preaching demonstrates that God is the source God is the source of true wisdom. And man-derived wisdom is foolishness. But it's so easy as a church, it's so easy as a preacher to drift into trusting ourselves to, to man-centered pre, uh, preaching. It's so easy to drift away from God's wisdom and God's power. A preacher can begin to think, that he can't reach people. Sometimes a pastor like me can think, well, we can't reach people unless we're relevant, unless we're crafty. Maybe the preaching of the word and the cross is not enough. Maybe we need to, to spice it up with something else. Or, or maybe I shouldn't say this because people will be offended. Or, or maybe I want this result. I want to push this agenda so we should say this or do this. Or maybe I want to be liked, so I want to be able to have people, you know, rally around me and cheer for me. So then maybe I should say this or say that. And preaching so can easily descend into man-centered preaching. One last illustration here. In 2013, the Presbyterian Church USA voted to not include In Christ Alone in their hymnal. You can look it up in the and articles that were written at that time. And they didn't like this phrase, in, in Christ alone. You know that song, in Christ alone, my hope is found. They didn't like this one. They didn't like the lyrics, on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. 
And the Presbyterian committee didn't like that teaching because it was offensive, that God was angry? In fact, Reverend Chris Joyner of the First Presbyterian Church in Franklin, Tennessee, agreed and said this, that lyric comes close to saying that God killed Jesus. The cross is not an instrument of God's wrath. And you listen to that and you're going, does that guy reading the same Bible I'm reading? And that's a preacher who has a man-centered message, and so he has rejected the clear teaching of Scripture, which is this, that we are justified by his blood, and much more we're saved by him, by Jesus, from the wrath of God. Jesus took the wrath so we don't have to. So therefore, we sing the wrath of God was satisfied. It's so easy to consider what people think is acceptable. What will culture say? What will society say? What does the state approve of? Therefore, how can we conform? But we must be committed to God's word and to clearly preaching the cross of Jesus Christ. So we must ever be on guard that our preaching is Christ-centered and cross-centered. Look at verse 23. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God. He is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so we preach And friend, if you're in here today without Christ, you are sinking into the abyss of self, seeking to the abyss of condemnation. Your soul is far from the Lord, but Christ is the Savior. He's the one who came to save you. And so let me plead with you, like like on that illustration of that ship where those people need to call out and to be saved, call out to Christ and come to him. And he promises that if you come to him, he will not cast you out. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, Christ says, I will give you rest. He has the power to save and he has the wisdom to save. And church, I think for us, we need to ask ourselves how committed we are to the wisdom of God. Are we looking to Christ for our wisdom? Are we looking to his word to have him speak to us? Do we long, do we long for the wisdom of God each day? Are we seeking the Lord's wisdom by submitting ourselves to, to Jesus Christ as our Lord, to his spirit to his word? Are we growing to know him more? Is that truly our desire? Are we depending on Christ as our wisdom? Are we depending on Christ as our power? Are we looking to him to give us grace, to sustain our soul, to delight our hearts, to direct our lives? May Christ, may Christ be our power. May he be our wisdom. May we be committed to the cross of Christ in his work for us. God's power and his wisdom is displayed through cross-centered preaching. And next week, we'll look at that he displays 
the divine call of God and the glory of God through preaching. Let's end in a word of prayer. As we bow in prayer, may we consider in our hearts Christ and his cross. Having the team come forward to lead us in a last song. For that, we're going to pray. But right now, as we're going to a time of prayer, I would like you to consider Christ. Maybe your heart and your life is far from the Lord. Maybe you've never called out to the Lord to be saved. Our weekly plea to you, our daily plea, Christ's plea is to come to him. Maybe you're a child or a teenager and you listen to this all the time. Please do not allow your heart to be hardened to the call of God. Answer that call. Come to him. And church, I think it's good for us to consider Christ and his cross in our own life. Are we committed to him? Are we seeking to know him more? Let's pray. Father, I pray for our church. It's so easy for us to to depend upon ourselves, to seek wisdom from within ourselves. Lord, even as ones who are saved by Christ, we can so easily drift away from what it is that saved us, and that is the grace of God found in the power of Jesus Christ's work on the cross. So, Lord, we, we confess there are days and there are times where we look to ourselves and we trust in ourselves. And Lord, we confess that when we do that, we are living like fools. Lord, I pray for the young person in here who is considering how they're going to live their life. Lord, I pray that they will base their thinking, their desires, their decisions upon the wisdom of God. Lord, I pray for all of us in here that we will depend completely upon the Holy Spirit and depend upon you. Lord, I pray that we will exalt Christ as our wisdom and our power. We pray this in Jesus' name.